You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War Premium Episode number 10. Last episode, we discussed a bit about the early developments of the tank before it went into battle in September 1916. This included the early designs and changes to what would become known as the tank, some of the production difficulties that it went through, and then how it was that they were sent to the front. This episode, we will carry forward that story as we look at the contribution of the tanks for the rest of the war. This will include a bit of battlefield performance, but I would like to remind everyone that battlefield information is not the purpose of these episodes, so we will not be really focusing on it. This is all about the design and development. Also, before we dive in here, I have to be honest. While I have the next six months or so of premium episodes planned out, I need ideas, topics, and questions to dig into. So if you have anything that you would like to hear about, even if it sounds small, it may turn into far more than you expect, like those two episodes about neutrals that were spawned by one small Facebook comment. Last month, we talked about the tanks going into battle in September 1916, and most of them did not do so well. Only a small fraction of the tanks available for the attack actually got to the start line, and then only a small number of those actually went into action. When I first read about the lack of results from the tanks, I expected the British commanders to have a similar assessment, that it had failed. They had spent all of this time and effort creating these machines, and they had not produced the results that had been hoped for, mostly due to the fact that they were almost completely unreliable. In the days following the first large attack, there were other smaller actions, where just a handful or even just one tank was used against specific objectives. In these instances, the tanks seemed to have performed much better, at least where they were able to keep running long enough to participate. When just a few tanks were used, they enabled the accompanying British units to make some pretty quick and clean tactical successes, like capturing the village of Goudicor, where just one female tank, that's just with machine guns, for armament, allowed the capture of a village with only a handful of British casualties and the capture of 400 German prisoners. These sort of actions played an important part in early evaluations of the tanks, and in my mind, the the greater success from these makes some sense. Many of the problems for the tanks, and especially the lack of endurance and the vulnerability to massed artillery fire, 
were much lessened when they were used in smaller surprise attacks, where the goals were nearby and the Germans were not as prepared. Overall, Haig judged the tank to be a success and was happy with what he had seen. After the first actions, Swinton had arrived at Haig's headquarters expecting disappointment, but he did not get that feeling from Haig or his staff, all of which seemed to be pretty happy. Sure, the tanks had not achieved everything set before them, but they were not able to do this because of their reliability issues, and that was fixable. Haig would actually write that, quote, wherever the tanks advanced, we took our objectives, and where they did not advance, we failed to take our objectives, end quote. Haig knew just how hot off the presses the tanks were, and how little time the crews had to prepare. These facts, combined with the fact that it was an entirely new weapons platform, made Haig very bullish on future prospects. Now, the problems they were having, the training, the reliability, the specific technical problems could all be fixed in time, and Haig wanted a thousand more tanks with an improved design as soon as possible for him to use on the battlefield. This request and other requests for various improvements began to filter back to London and also to the press, where they had a field day. The tank became all the rage in the British press, a new weapon system seen on the battlefield for the first time. Such a glorious day. While the public was finding out about the tanks for the first time, through the words written by newsmen all over Britain, there were also good chunks of the British government who were just as new to the information, and there were mixed reactions among the various groups. One of the problems was that the conservatives really did not like Churchill at this point, after he had abandoned them and moved to the other side of the aisle. And his role in the development, and his soon-to-be promotion to Minister of Munitions, due to his role partially in tank development, caused a lot of friction. There was also a lot of debate and discussion about this thousand tank order that Haig had put in. One thing that quickly became apparent was that it was going to take a long time to get a thousand tanks to the army. The tentative date had been set for the spring of 1917, but this date began to slip almost immediately. Once Churchill and the Ministry of Munitions began crunching numbers, they had to push the date for delivery back to June 1917 and admit that they would probably only have about 250 done by the spring. As the government tried to rapidly scale up the production of the tanks and other fighting vehicles to go along with them, friction between the army and the government and the manufacturers continued to grow and grow. Part of this was the constantly influxed nature of the army's requests and demands. It got so bad that at a few points, especially in the early fall of 1916, there were discussions about reducing the number of tanks to zero, or just forgetting the whole thing altogether, or completely changing it. It was all kinds of confusing. Part of this was due to cost, but a big part of it was due to the army demands for various changes, because they kept wanting to change things. Stern was at the forefront of all of these discussions, and he maintained his belief that it was absolutely critical that the tanks be made, and they be made in huge numbers, regardless of how difficult or costly that might be. Convincing everybody else that this was the right move was generally his problem, and after fighting all of these various ministries and ministers and lords and people from the House of Commons, Stern had to eventually just start pulling out his two trump cards to get things done. And these trump cards were big ones, and they were, came in the form of Lloyd George and General Haig. 
Using these trumps and the insane amount of political capital that they had, Stern was able to keep everything going and to keep enough support together until the Mark IV tanks began to arrive in sufficient numbers to the army, at which point everybody seems to have gotten back on board with the idea, at least for the time being. All of these efforts were critical, the securing of support and the pushing through of production due to how long it was going to take to make the hundreds of tanks thought necessary to make any real difference in the war. This allowed the British to deliver 800 Mark IV tanks between their creation and September 1917, and without Stern constantly pushing all the various groups in Britain forward, they probably would have been stuck with just a few hundred Mark IIs and Threes for a very long time, maybe all the way to the end of the war. This would have completely changed the tank landscape for the British, and maybe for all of history. Now let's talk about the Mark IV for just a bit. It would sort of be the British tank during the war. It would be the most produced, with over a thousand created in total. There would be tanks that came after, the Mark V, for example, but it would mostly just be a refinement of the IV, and it would come too late for its numbers to ever match those of the Mark IV. The reason for the development of the Mark IV was rooted in the various weaknesses of all the previous tank designs. It was also a function of the tank designers refusing to make any meaningful changes to the Mark II and III while they were still being produced. They feared that any large changes to existing tank specifications would slow the production too much, without having the real benefits of just creating a new design. There were lofty goals in the original Mark IV plans, but these would eventually be scaled back, making it look a lot more like a Mark III than initially desired. However, that did not mean that it did not greatly improve upon the earlier designs. Most of this revolved around the vulnerabilities of the armor and the ability to move across battlefield terrain. Concerns with these aspects of the tank began to filter back to the design teams in the last few months of 1916. As always, with any military product that is seeing its first usage in combat, the list of changes the army wanted was lengthy. Here is just a sample provided by David Glanfield in his book Devil's Chariots. Calling for more powerful engines, stronger armor, anti-splash measures, non-shattering prisms, better bomb protection of roofs, modified guns and mountings, means of avoiding bellying, provision for track adjustments from inside the tank under fire, and a redesign of the sponsons, which tended to wedge into the ground when the tanks healed over, leaving them ditched and highly vulnerable to artillery. Stern and the other designers took all of this feedback and started trying to fix some of the problems. The one thing that would not change was the armament. It would still be the same six-pounder guns and machine guns. These were generally working great, and besides, there were bigger problems to try to solve. First of all, it was given a new engine, 150 horsepower, designed by Harry Ricardo, who was at the young age of 32. This would be the primary engine used for the Mark IV tanks, and 700 were ordered almost instantly. They would give Ricardo a big leg up on later tank orders, and his engines would be the standard for all British tanks in the war, although later engines would be more powerful. Another change relating to the engine was the move of the primary fuel tank from inside the cabin to a heavily armored tank on the back of the vehicle. This might seem a bit scary, but it had two huge benefits. The first was that it greatly increased the room inside the tank, which allowed the crew to be more efficient at their jobs. The second benefit was that it greatly reduced the chance of fire occurring inside the tank. 
With fire being such a huge cause of casualties among tankers in the Mark II and III, this was great. And it also allowed so if that tank on the back caught fire, generally the fire was isolated to outside the tank, making it much easier to fix the tank because all you had to do was put a new fuel tank on it. The armor was also increased, a change necessitated by the introduction of German armor-piercing bullets, which were able to easily punch through the lighter armor of the older vehicles. The last large change made to the Mark IV was a change in transmission that meant that only one man was needed to control the engine and drive the tank. There were of course a wide range of other smaller changes, like wider track shoes, quality of life changes for the crew areas, and the ability to fold the weapon sponsons inward for transport. Those are just a few of the small little changes. The first set of Mark IV tanks would arrive for testing and training in April 1917, which was later than hoped, but would still be in time for any summer offensives. One further piece of feedback from the front was that spares simply had to be available in larger numbers. Special care had to be given to having enough spares for areas that were proving to wear out far faster than expected, especially in the tracks and shoes and sprockets that kept all of that going. In some of the muddier battlefields, these parts were wearing out many times faster than expected, with mud sort of acting as a sandpaper to grind them down. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Easily the most recognizable tank action of 1917 would happen at Cambrai later in the year, but that was not the first tank operation of the year. Instead, that took place in April in Arras. For, for this attack, there were supposed to be two brigades of tanks available, with a total of 240 tanks. Unfortunately, the British were nowhere close to being able to provide this number to fill out the order of battle, and instead, there were only about 60 tanks that would be available at that point in time. These would be put under the command of Brigadier General Hugh Eels, and while he had 60 tanks under his command, he would only get about 40 of the Mark IIs and Threes to the start line on April 9th for the 3rd Army to use. These 40 were divided among the various objectives, and when the attack happened, the biggest problem had nothing to do with German actions, but instead the terrain in the area. 
The ground here was soft and had been under constant artillery fire and simply grounded up into mush. Very few of the tanks were able to successfully navigate this terrain, and they often got bogged down and became easy targets for German artillery. This included all of the tanks allocated to the Canadians, who had their date with destiny at Vimy Ridge during this action. It was very clear by this point, at least looking back hindsight 2020 and all that, that hard, mostly undisturbed ground was the ideal situation for tank operations. But that would be hard to find, and the British would be slow to realize this completely, which sort of explains why the tanks were used in Flanders in July. In this action, the tank corps, as it was called at this point in time, took part in the Third Battle of Ypres, and it had 216 tanks, many of which were the new shiny Mark IVs. During this battle, the goal of the tanks was to push with the infantry through the first, second, and even third line of German defenses. However, I don't know if you could design a battlefield less suited for tanks than the mud of Flanders during the Third Battle of Ypres, which had been preceded by a full month of artillery preparations. The tanks just slid off many of the available roads, and many of them became stuck in shell craters or just in mud within meters of their starting areas. Of the 136 tanks that actually got off the start line, only about 19 were still running in mobile by the end of the day. This seems to have triggered something in the minds of the British commanders, finally convincing them that maybe putting large metal machines, which already had issues with mobility, in the giant mud puddle that was Flanders and telling them to try and go forward was maybe not a good plan. While there were these types of failures, it did not greatly shake Haig's belief that this was the future, and it was an important part of future British successes that they get the tank figured out. He would write to General Robertson back in London late in the summer of 1917 that, quote, The further experience of the recent battle around Arras confirms my view that as large a number of reliable tanks should be put into the field as soon as possible. Although the present tank is admittedly defective in many respects, the excellent service rendered by a percentage on every occasion on which we have used them has made it quite clear that a force of well-organized, reliable tanks is a necessity for the modern battle, and is likely to greatly contribute to winning a victory and reaping its fruits. Haig's continued support for the tanks and the political power that he wielded meant that emphasis on tanks increased, and this also included the creation of a medium tank, something that the British had not done so far. This was not solely a British idea or invention. In fact, the French had been actively pursuing the use of smaller and more nimble tanks for the entire time that the British had been working on their larger behemoths. While the British Mark IV tanks might be good at battering the German lines, they were really unable to fulfill the sort of cavalry role that some generals wanted them to. They wanted something fast and with good enough range to not just punch through the German lines, but also keep able to keep going after that. This was the path that the French went down with their tanks, and these smaller machines, each far less powerful, could be fielded in much greater numbers. The British would get into this game as well, with the creation of the 14-ton Whippet tank, which was half the size of the Mark IV, and was much smaller and faster, and had a much greater range. These Whippets were first introduced in late 1916, but they would not be seen on the battlefield until the Battle of Cambrai in late 1917. For those with good memories, 
You may remember we discussed the Whippets a bit during the Cavalry episodes when we discussed the the events of the Battle of Cambrai. The Cambrai region was one of open, rolling countrysides, with firm ground that had not been greatly disturbed by the war so far. It was in the German Hindenburg Line that they had retreated to earlier in 1917, which meant that it was about as fresh of country as anywhere along the front. The British could choose this area for their next tank attack, and in this area the tanks would finally be able to use some form of tactics and strategy, which, since it was an area chosen for a tank attack and not an attack chosen for infantry, with tanks sort of bolted on as an afterthought. Here is a description of the tactics that would be used, as described by Brian Cooper in his book Tank Battles of World War I. Quote, the tactics eventually devised by Fuller were based on an ingenious system of leapfrogging for which the tanks were formed into sections of three operating together. The advanced tank was to go forward through the German wire, flattening it for the oncoming infantry. When it came to the first trench, it would not cross, but turn left and drive parallel along the edge, shooting down the enemy to protect the two, body, two main body tanks following behind. One of these was to drop its fascine, or you know, a large group of sticks, into the tank in the trenches as at a selected spot and then cross over and also turn left along the other side of the trench. The third tank, meanwhile, would also cross over and make for the next line of trenches. End quote. Now, a fascine was just these large bundles of sticks, basically, that were fashioned onto the front of the tanks. They were wrapped in, in chains, and then they were dropped into a trench to sort of give it away to roll over. These tanks would be accompanied by infantry, with three platoons assigned to follow up each group of three tanks, with the task of completing any mopping up attacks on German positions. The following message was sent to the crews of all the tanks that would be participating in the assault. Quote, Tomorrow the tank corps will have the chance for which it has been waiting for many months, to operate on good going in the van of the battle. All that hard work and ingenuity can achieve has been done in the way of preparation. It remains for unit commanders and tank crews to complete the work by judgment and pluck in the battle itself. In the light of past experience, I leave the good name of the corps with great confidence in their hands. I propose leading the attack in the center division. Hugh L's Breeder General, Commanding Tank Corps. Cambrai would be a completely different experience for the tankers, with one crew member describing it with these words. Quote, it seemed almost too good to be true, the steady, steadily rumbling forward over marvelous going. No craters in the ground, no shelling from the enemy, and our infantry following steadily behind. Emerging out of the gloom, a dark mass came steadily towards us, the German wire. It appeared absolutely impenetrable. It was certainly the thickest and deepest I have ever seen, stretching in front of us in three belts, each about 50 yards deep. It neither stopped our tanks nor broke up and wound around our tracks as we had feared, but squashed flat as we moved forward and remained flat. A broad carpet of wire was left behind us, as wide as our tank, over which the infantry were able to pick their way without any difficulty. Quote. Now it very quickly became apparent how much better the tanks performed when they were given the opportunity to operate in an area of their choosing. By midday, the tanks had broken through the German lines and advanced five miles, capturing a hundred artillery pieces and 8,000 German prisoners in the process. 
This balanced against only 4,000 British casualties. There were still issues to be solved with the tanks, and they would still not quite continue their advance forever, but these gains were simply phenomenal. One problem that was still not solved, and that we know about today, after a century of hindsight, it's still extremely difficult, but this is when tanks would be confronted with villages and towns. Now here is Fuller, the creator of the tank tactics mentioned earlier, talking about the attack on the village of Fontaine, where the tanks found themselves completely unprepared. Quote, there was a horrible slaughter in Fontaine, and I, who had spent three weeks before the battle and thinking out its probabilities, had never tackled the subject of village fighting. I could have kicked myself again and again for this lack of foresight, but it never occurred to me that our infantry commanders would thrust tanks into such places. End quote. Even with some of these problems, Cambrai is still seen as one of the great turning points of military history. It was on that field that day that the tank showed its true strength when given the opportunity for success. And it would be from this route, the next century of warfare, even today, 99 years later, that tanks are the kings of the battlefield. Even before this success at Cambrai, the next revision of British tanks were already being designed, which would eventually become known as the Mark V. These tanks were designed to be ready and available for the expected 1918 summer offensives, and while there were initially big plans for change, just like with the Mark IV, the designers were eventually forced to settle on just keeping most of the design with small improvements. The most important of these were around reliability and heavier armor to keep up with the arms race between British armor and German anti-tank weapons. The initial run of the Mark IV was just 400 tanks, although this would be increased later on. And even though some of the performance gains would not meet their initial design goals, they were still a critical piece of the 1918 British Army. The first deliveries would reach France in February 1918, and plenty of time to play their role in the later offensives of the war. On the German side, while they would never put the same emphasis on tank design and production, they did manage to field one design the A7V. It has a gigantically long German name that I'm not even going to attempt, and you should probably thank me for that. This had been designed by the Daimler Corporation, and would make its battlefield debut in 1918. The design was a result of the admission of the German leaders that maybe armored fighting vehicles did have a future in the army, and the result was a 40-ton behemoth with a crew of 16 and 6 machine guns to go along with the 57mm gun, which was apparently very similar to the 6-pounder in the British machines. This huge beast was powered by two 100-horsepower engines, which actually gave it a better power-to-weight ratio than its British counterparts, and also gave it a top speed of a blistering 8 miles an hour. It had 30 millimeters of armor, which meant that it would withstand even a direct hit from smaller British artillery guns. It was an impressive machine, no doubt about it, but it was only impressive on the right battlefield. Its tracks were small when compared with the British tanks, and it had abysmal off-road performance, and just forget about trying to get it to cross a trench. The biggest problem would always be not its performance, not its design, but the number that the Germans could produce. The army initially wanted a hundred of them, but that number would never be reached, with only 200 being built in total. These massive machines and the material that was required to build them, the expertise required to build them, 
was simply too much to ask of the German war machine that was already at maximum capacity, trying to create all of the other things needed for the war. The battles of 1918, especially after the German spring offensives, were a time for the tanks of the Allied armies to shine. By this point, they were integral pieces of the British and French armies, and soon the American army as well. Almost 2,000 would take part in the fighting of the last 100 days of the war. Back in London, continual improvements were made to production capacity and efficiency, even though most of this would not make a noticeable effect before the armistice in November. After the war, Haig would give a lot of credit to the tanks and their crews for the successes of the last hundred days. Quote, Since the beginning of our offensive on August 8th, tanks have been employed on every battlefield, and the importance of the part played by them in breaking up the resistance of the German infantry can scarcely be exaggerated. The whole scheme of the attack of August 8th was dependent upon tanks, and ever since that date, on numberless occasions, the success of our infantry has been powerfully assisted or confirmed by their timely arrival. So great was their effect produced upon the German infantry by the appearance of the British tanks, that in more than one instance, when for various reasons real tanks were not available in sufficient numbers, valuable results had been attained by the use of dummy tanks painted on frames of wood and canvas. End quote. The tanks, after years of designs and years of improvements, had finally found their place in the war, just as it was ending. The future of the tank corps in the British Army was long in flux after the war, until it finally constituted a separate arm in 1923. But it would rest on its laurels during the interwar period. Due to budget cutting and lack of innovation, over, 20, over the next 20 years, the British Army would enter the battlefields of the next war, completely unprepared for the armor warfare that faced them. On the other side, the defeated German army had taken all of the lessons that the British innovators and their tanks during the First World War had learned and showed them, and they created an entirely new fighting style based around the new and improved tanks. But that story of another war and the results of the use of tanks in that war is a story for another day. <laughs> 